0: Welcome to The Art of the Impossible, a podcast for the design and manufacturing industry that explores how you can leverage technology, processes, and people to make the impossible possible. I'm Asif Mogul, Senior Industry Manager at Autodesk, and each week I'll be joined by two experts from the design and manufacturing world to discuss their perspectives on the challenges our industry faces and share what they're doing to overcome them. From smart products mass customization, digitization, supply chain resilience, and the convergence of once diverse industries, this podcast is for anyone that runs a design and manufacturing business who's interested in making things possible. You can subscribe by following us on Apple, Spotify, or via your favorite platform. Harvard Business Review some time ago wrote a paper talking about innovation, and it was really interesting. It talked about the fact there's three types of innovation: uh, incremental, um, making small regular improvements to the things that we do; adjacent innovation, which is taking something we're already very good at and applying that technology to a, an, a, an adjacent market; and the holy grail, which is transformational or transformative innovation. and What's really interesting is that the top performing companies tend to have a blend or a balance of those three types of innovation. But transformative innovation carries with it the biggest amount of risk, but also the greatest amount of reward. And I think that's why so many organizations are, are hell-bent on trying to find their next big thing, their next big transformation. So how do we enable SME manufacturers to de-risk and you know dial up the amount of transformative innovation they do? Is it purely that we have to train our people? Do we have to bring new people into the, to the business? Train our thinking? Train our engineers differently? Or is it a combination of both? And so to help explore that topic, I've got two very special guests with me today. I've got Paul Pereira, who's the technology manager at My Mask Fit, And My MyMaskFit works with universities to develop custom fit reusable PPE. And Nicole Pelison, Who's an aeronautical engineer undergraduate at Imperial College London, and Nicole is focusing on additive manufacturing, data science, and in her own words, a bit of tinkering, and she's got some pretty transformative ideas about how we could change the aviation industry. So, welcome to you both. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: All right. So let's sort of kick off. So, um, Paul, maybe we could start with you. If you could tell us a little bit about my mask fit. So, what is it? How did you get started? And um, if, if we snapped our fingers and suddenly your product was on the market this afternoon, what do you think the transformative impact would be?
1: Okay, so I got started after 30 years, almost to the day, um, working in aerospace for the likes of Airbus, BE Systems, Rolls-Royce and GKN Aerospace. Um, I was the VP for technology in, in GKN, looking after things like additive, industry four, um, fourth industrial revolution. And clearly, with the resilience of our supply chain, uh, we managed to convert uh that supply chain with Rolls-Royce, GK and a number of others, Airbus, to create ventilators. And that's when I began the journey to say, well, how can I transform things? So I set up the ventilator challenge with Dick Elsie and the high-value manufacturing catapults here in the UK. And we generated 14,000 ventilators 14 weeks later. And we leveraged technology. And I thought, well, what more good can we do for the world? And given that we've still got this virus and it's still killing lots of people, unfortunately, we need to do something to stop that. And the most vulnerable people are those people in hospitals putting themselves at risk. Um, and clearly, uh, and it's become more apparent even this week with the issues in the White House, You know, mask wearing is going to be an essential um, ingredient to solve the challenges we, su- we, we suffer. And even when we get a vaccine, I can't see that that's gonna change. So I took my learning from uh, additive manufacturing, from industry four, um, developing digital twins and AI, and said, well, how can I solve the world's problem around this? And we spoke to ICU nurses, in hospitals who 20% of them um, by um, statistics don't fit the standard size masks. And therefore, you know, we started thinking how many other people, if this goes to be a global challenge, won't be able to sit in a standard size mask. So if we roll ourselves forward, um, in a, hopefully in a month's time, the proof of concept we've got means that you can scan your face using a mobile app on a, the, a mobile device, any kind will do, um, and then two days later, you bring yourself to the doorstep and you find a box with your mask that fits, hence the name My Mask Fit. So I'm using all my learning from aerospace uh, regulated marketplaces to create a solution to today's problems. Now, I don't sit here in today thinking that's the end of it. The day after tomorrow is where the real innovation is going to come from. And so beyond the mask, we can see how we can use the same technology to do my shoes fit, uh, my my glasses fit, my um iPod, if pods fit, you know, anything to do with a personalization. I think one of the challenges of this decade is more personalized products and services. And also, it means that we need to think about a distributed supply chain. And, you know, we know that in the midst of this pandemic, some amazing things have happened, which have been transformative. Um, I'm working with Swansea University, who are partnered uh, with us on creating this marketplace. And hopefully we will see uh WaterDesk is heavily involved in that. And what we're going to do is um, build off the back of their um, additive manufacturing server farms that they created. And they provided 14,000 face shields within two weeks um, through this uh, 3D printing farm distributed network. So what more can we do about asset sharing? And I think that's another part of the supply chain that's going to be transformed when we actually look at distributed supply chains. And then we think about the business model. And I think these three things coming together will transform the whole of manufacturing. So the manufacturing supply chain business model could be on piece part manufacture for one good today and another tomorrow. So how do we create this flexible, agile, responsive supply chain that can take a design, develop it, move it into production, and rapidly reconfigure their business overnight? That's the challenge for this transformation, I believe.
0: That sounds absolutely huge, Paul. I mean, so you know, the, there's a potential for the product to transform um, um, the lives of uh, the people it's designed to protect. Um, you know, a better, a better fitting product um, uh, decreases the risk of um, somebody transmitting COVID virus. Then, what you said, the process has the ability to transform, and potentially there's an adjacent innovation opportunity there. Well, if you can make a mask fit, then what? What you know? Why not shoes or earpods, as you say? And then even the sort of business transformation, you could transform. Your business to be able to supply you know, custom fit stuff to, to people all the world. So I mean, the, the, the potential for transformation for that is absolutely huge, and um, I think in a really positive way. So, so Nicole, you know, having uh, kind of heard all that and thinking about your um, experience, I know you had this um, pretty big idea around how we could transform the aviation industry. Do you want to just share with us? You know, some of the work that you did, and, and, and again, asking you the same question, if we snapped our fingers in this afternoon, your, your kind of ideas and concepts for aviation were implemented, what would the transformational impact of those innovations be?
2: Um, yeah, of course. So I, I looked into um, how we could take pretty small and insignificant parts of an aircraft and lighten them enough so that when you add it all together, you get a, a significant change. So the particular project I looked at was the, um, the bracket that connects the table tray to the uh, seat in front of you, which is something that it's, it's small, it's light, but you've got two on each chair and think about how many you've got on a single aircraft. So even a very small reduction of a few grams will eventually add up, roll it out onto entire fleets um, all across the world. Then you've got this um, big change in fuel economy and CO2 emissions. And I think there's been a lot of talk about seeing how there's very little what the individual person can do in that sort of sense, but it's these big corporations that have a lot more responsibility. So it's these little changes. And uh, part of it as well was um, using generative design to to make these design changes. And it's almost having it in this very public space where people get used to seeing it also helps sort of public vision of it as well to sort of be less afraid of these strange looking parts, um, which can hopefully mean it will. It'll become people become more used used to seeing it and it'll be less of a strange thing to see these strange innovations that aren't a sort of traditional route um, into new new changes
0: again so similarly I'm trying to draw parallels between the examples Paul gave and what you just described it seems again there's um the potential for transformation is huge um tons and tons and tons of carbon or even hundreds of tons of carbon could be taken out of the atmosphere by by making this you know some of small things. I think that's that you talked about. Lots of little changes equals a huge impact. And it kind of reminded me, Paul, of what you were saying in terms of you know you start with this sort of concept of a custom fit mask, but then add that with something else and something else in a supply chain and a marketplace. A lot of you know a lot of things that are connected can can be the catalyst if you like for this sort of big transformation. I'm just wondering why why more people aren't thinking like this, uh, Paul. What, what's kind of your view? What what's what's preventing more business leaders and owners, kind of having these sort of
1: thoughts. no I'm, I'm fortunate enough to work for very entrepreneurial people in the past. And um, yeah, the challenge in some large organizations is control, governance, uh, the mechanisms for which are often hindering the innovation being able to re- be released. And I think Nicole's examples, um, my best uh, analogy to this is that I worked on hydrogen-powered um, flight 10 years ago, you know, I was working for a little company called Rolls-Royce um, and pushed that message into the big organization that sits above it and said, look, this is the future. And it was. And I was the strategy and future programs lead for a large part of the business. But you know, in the incumbent, inherent you know, organization, it said, well, that's not a gas turbine. How do we see value in that? That's going to destroy our business, not increase our business. So it kind of got pushed to the side. Then I came to um, GKN Aerospace, where I put the message on the table, hydrogen is the future. Now, look at today's announcements and this last week. That's a, a significant change in 10 years. We're now seeing Airbus saying they're going to develop, by 2035, a hydrogen-powered aircraft. I'm confident it will happen sooner than that. I'm already talking to other companies about the uh, the application of hydrogen. And um, coming back to you know my Mars fit and what we're doing there, Many of the things I'm doing there can apply to a hydrogen fuel cell and a balance of plant associated with that. Um, you know, There's a lot of space constraints, as I think Nicole was talking about, a lot of optimization, generative design features in a hydrogen uh, redeveloped aircraft. And we have to take weight out because the one biggest challenge of a hydrogen-powered aircraft is that you're carrying huge tanks uh, volume-wise, and they carry weight. And of course, that's the biggest uh, challenge in any aircraft to carry that weight you're carrying additional fuel for every um, pound or kilo of weight. So one of the things that I've been thinking about is about connecting the dots. And there are very few people who have got the luxury to be able to spend the time like I kind of do uh, looking across different boundaries and saying, well, what could I learn from this industry and take into that industry? How can I work with universities so that I can accelerate my innovation? I had the privilege of being uh, the lead sponsor for the Boeing ATI Aerospace Technology Institute Accelerator Programme. And three of those companies have actually joined me on the journey now into uh, my Fit, where we've brought you know, a team that's working on distributed uh, additive manufacturing from Authentize, and they push out um, manufacturing execution into machines, and we can work out exactly where in the supply chain everything is. Are they building to quality, to standard, uh, and responsiveness timescales? I've also built in here um, features of artificial intelligence and machine learning that have come from uh, another startup that we've been working with and they are now redeveloping their business model and, and, and really innovative in how they've kind of turned on a dime and moved in a different direction through, through the ventilator challenge now into this and they're building out another feature set which will enhance the way engineers collaborate. Um, then I'm also working with uh, you know universities who are creating intellectual property whether it be University of Birmingham, King's College London, Swansea Um, and also the National Physics Labs. And what we've realized is if you don't go down the road of really exploring those collaborative ecosystems, then you're missing out. I mean, it's key to me to bring industry closer to academia. I have seen that, obviously, we've got these great big um, research centers now, the RTOs of the National Composite Center, the Manufacturing Technology Center, uh, the AMRC up in Sheffield and also North Wales, all great, wonderful buildings and great projects, what's difficult if you're a small company sometimes is getting involved in that, because the overhead associated with being involved in what's become quite large organisations is not as nimble nor efficient cost effectively for a small company. So I think the network effect, working across smaller companies with universities is the way of the future. Yes, leveraging some of those great strengths of our um, high value manufacturing centres, but also working with the technology providers like Autodesk and others who can bring that network together. So that to me, the sum of, you know, a bit of uh, investment from companies, a lot of investment from academia and exploitation channels into government are the ways of the new normal. And I think that's the, the future.
0: Yeah. And connecting the dots, I think you said, Paul, which is uh, something that kind of resonated with me. Um one of, the, one of the sort of the features of, of the modern world is sort of crowdsourcing crowdsourcing everything you, you crowdsource funding with things like Kickstarter and now we're seeing an increasing um, push to crowdsource expertise uh, and you know one thing that I'm sort of very painfully aware of is the is the um, sheer raw talent that exists inside I, I think undervalued talent that exists inside universities uh, students who are studying design and engineering um, and Nicole I'm kind of wondering, Um, Have you got examples where yourself and maybe some of your colleagues have just got together to solve a problem either for, you know, a company or or, or a project where you sort of crowdsourced expertise? Because it just feels like, you know, there's so much needed to design and manufacture and bring a product to market. Um, It seems to be too big for a traditional, you know, mechanical engineering degree to encompass. You, You need these additional skills around it. And some of the best places to get those skills is the crowdsourcing approach. So do you have examples of where you've maybe worked in that way and the impact it's had to, to connect the dots?
2: Unfortunately, I don't, um, which I think is a real shame. It's um, I completely agree with what both of you are saying, that it's this connecting the dots, working um, through multi-disciplines is incredibly helpful. Not only do you have this extra knowledge, this new way of thinking, but it's also sort of building that network and finding out the different ways that different departments do things. And... Perhaps it's just, you know, specific to, to my university, but it's something I think that really should be pushed forward and is, is where this sort of link between academia and industry can become really helpful. So, obviously, it, it can be quite difficult from within an academic sense to have this cross-department cross, um, cross department working. Uh, but you see it happening in slowly, slowly getting pushed forward. So, for example, Sheffield with their new, uh, I think it's called the Diamond Engineering Building, where they've got all of engineering working together it's a really great initiative being honest from what i've heard it apparently it's not actually working quite as imagined but i think it's one of those things that it will take a little, t- little bit of time to sort of seep in and also just change the way that things work and it's sort of one of those unfortunate unfortunate parts of innovation that sometimes it can take a lot while to get sort of picked up on before people become truly enthusiastic about it which is a shame but it's it's something that we've really got to try and push forward and I think, you know, taking Sheffield's example, it would be great to see that in more places because it's really this whole talking to other people, seeing how other people do things is, I think, a significant part of education and learning.
1: Yeah, on that, Nicole, just adding to this thinking, I'm wondering whether the new normal doesn't position things like a building as actually a feature that we will not need in the future. You just talked about getting people together, collaborating, seeing what each other's doing, learning from that. But with digital... um, You know, I'm also working with a company I just founded in Wales um, to build out of gaming technology. You know, my kids spend a lot of time on gaming consoles and they're socially networked. They're continuing their social engagement despite lockdown, building new things like Minecraft or, you know, continuing uh, with that theme. I've worked with Ingenuity. I'm on the non-exec panel uh, working to develop skills in, in STEM. And we've built something called skills minor where we can bring together people's abilities and even tap into as asif was talking about unacknowledged capability so skills minor actually allows people from all walks of life to go in and play within an environment which is a truly engineering capability um, skill set environment it tells you where your skills are we have a great story of a, a young girl who was in a deprived area around manchester and uh, her teacher pretty much wrote her off. We took the skills minor tool to their school and she was um, playing away with this tool. Suddenly, a report came back and said to uh, the teacher, actually, this lady, this young girl is um, possibly your brightest. The teacher didn't understand. I mean, she wrote her off almost. Um, and this girl realized that she had untapped capability in engineering. And since then, has become really to involve herself in startup projects and get involved online and in making things happen. And it's a wonderful story where, you know, and, and she comes from a very diverse background. She's hugely innovative, slightly dyslexic, maybe slightly autistic. Uh, and maybe that's part of who I am too. But um, the, the idea of bringing together people with untapped capabilities that may not rise to the surface is something I think is fascinating. And then building on this to think about what can we do around aviation right now you know, I, I remember leaving university in a downturn and, and guess what? You know, we're in that same place some 30 years on. Um, what can we do with this amazing talent that's coming out of universities to build the future aircraft? I now think there's probably capability sitting around many of it, idle in in actual activity, but not idle in their minds. So I remember even thinking about raising the platform we've created open source let anyone come on to it and collaborate i'm actually working with a, a, a young lady who got a first class degree out of um Bristol in aeronautical engineering and she's created a platform called Eng- engineer to engineer and it's like a peer-to-peer type learning setup so engineers can connect with each other across the globe and share their learning um, and she's done amazingly she's now back in dubai with her family And we keep working on that platform. In fact, yesterday, we started connecting up with other universities across the globe. Um, I think there are new models where we can bring the talents together to solve these global challenges. And I take the the ventilator challenge as another example of that, where industry with academia, with kind of scientists brought to the table a real solution that no one would have dreamt of even six months ago. So here's the possibility to solve Climate change, I think, is a bigger challenge than COVID.
0: There's a definite groundswell of this. I hear this a lot. Almost in every sort of podcast we've recorded, every customer conversation I have, it comes back to collaboration, open source, being more collaborative, being more open, um, not trying to manage a process, but create an environment for people to innovate and talk and work together. I suppose I suppose the challenge is um, the natural tendency for the commercial world is we must, we must monetize it. And if we can't see how we monetize it immediately, let's kill it. And so, you know, that's sort of short-term thinking. And maybe, Nicole, that's, you know, what you were talking about with the Sheffield is, is you know, we create an environment. We expect it to deliver results instantly. Perhaps if we took a longer-term view, um, we just all relaxed about it, the results will come. And maybe they might be different to the results we expected, but they, they could still be as valuable. And it just strikes me that's a sort of, that's a mental attitude. That's nothing to do with technology. That's to do with human beings. So I kind of wanted to just let now move on to explore um, characteristics of, um, innovative companies and innovative people. So, um, so Nicole, let's let's sort of start with yourself. So, if you if you had to write, um, let's, let's let's imagine we're we're coding DNA coding. We're going to create the ultimate innovative human being. Um, what are some of the characteristics that you think that person would be if we were to look at that them and say there is a really innovative human? It's a tough question, I know, but um,
2: it is, yeah. <laughs> As I say, aside from the sort of the immediate obvious of the the vague intelligence idea of someone who's capable and um able to sort of create these these innovative ideas, it's I think a large part of it is probably just down to being open, um open to to hearing new things, open to change in particular. It's um particularly with working from home now during the pandemic. it's it's really, I think put a spotlight on companies that are open to this new digital way of thinking. You know, companies that listen to their younger employees and said, yes, we'll implement things like Zoom from the start and uh, Slack, all these sort of platforms that allow working from home, working from different countries. And it's made the world not smaller, but closer together. And it means you can collaborate with people from across the world so much more easily. And it's just being open to these new experiences that I think is the, almost the more crucial mm-hmm. thing. A great idea means nothing if you can't implement it properly. It's being it's willing to, to shift with the tide as well as things go. Um as much as I hate to say it, from the sort of uh, what's the word morality of it, Amazon have been doing fantastically now um, for various reasons. But part of it is just because they were sort of that far ahead of the curve with this, um, allowing the customer to have so much choice over the product.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I think that to build on that, I think the the characteristics of someone who's innovative, I think uh, builds on other people's ideas and and sees strengths in people. Um, but they also, I think, see patterns, and they see ahead of the curve in terms of trends. So we talk about data analytics and AI. I think the human mind is the best AI tool we have. Um, some people ask me, well, Paul, how, how did you see things like hydrogen coming? How did you, I mean, I saw ventilators coming before we needed ventilators. Um, I use many different sources i just counted the number of books that i've read since lockdown and it's over 50 different books um <laughs> and I, someone just asked me well did you just did you get them from the library and I, I just go on amazon back to you and i find these most amazing resources of brilliant minds across the world but i also integrate them and join up the dots with you know social media so i'm not you know constrained by one set of themes and i build up pictures of what could be the next trend and how does i how do i respond to that trend, what are the challenges that I can bring to support in and develop? So I already see the next thing that's about to hit us. You know, there won't be a vaccine anytime soon, as much as I can want to have it in our doorsteps, you know, and we want to you know the, the facts are, even if we have a vaccine, the most likely booster time will be every two months. So, you know, we are going to be living with this virus for some time. So, you know, do we need actually to think about a distributed vaccination service where, you know, pharmacies now become vaccination points? Do we need to think about, um, you know, each self vaccinating each other? Are we going to get to a point where there's going to be a, a new model for distribution of the, the antivirals? Um, what does that bring to my mind? It brings to my mind a huge new logistics chain, a new way of thinking. Um, I've talked about drones being a, a last mile logistics service. I think we're going to see the deregulation of aerospace in some areas where drone deliveries for anti-vaccines will be required. There are certainly people in remote areas today that can't get themselves out of their house, particularly the vulnerable and the weak and and those that are exposed and sheltering. We need to look after them. And I think that we we must think about how our technology solves the humanitarian problem. I stood on a stage about November last year with a a wonderful um, speaker called Gerd um, Leonard who talks about the use of technology. We can use it for all the good reasons, but there will be some people who use it for the wrong reasons. And I think it's our role in society to police those good reasons and keep building on them. But um, that's something I'd like to work with you know, universities and construct a, a social enterprise around the use of unmanned air course to help support this next big challenge.
0: And so so to kind of achieve that, um, if we go back to Nicole's, she's kind of created this, this, this ultimate human being um, and if I summarize what you were saying, Nicole, the person has to be creative, obviously. Um, they've got to be open. Um, I took a sense of adaptability. And then, Paul, what you were saying is they need to have the ability to spot patterns and make connections. So if that's, if that's the DNA of what a really innovative, transformative human might look like, Paul, how on earth would we bring that sort of thinking into um uh, like let's just say an SME, I think for large organizations that might potentially might be slightly easier because you might have more resource to do it. But if you're an SME manufacturer, 200, 300 people based in the Midlands, how do you how do you instill that into your business um, strategy, your goal, your mission, your vision?
1: I think there's three things there. One, you need the vision yourself to bring your employees and the capabilities up. I think you need, two, the confidence to go and apply it. And three, you need some resources to make it happen. If you have the ingredients of the vision, the resources, and the capabilities in in whatever form that might be through a distributed collaboration, whether that be in your own team, I think you've got everything that it takes. You just need that confidence to take it to the next level. I mean, this environment we live in and the way that the UK government in particular, I think other governments around the world are looking at the challenge and building that better or the green growth. There's so many opportunities that I can see that if you're a small company, just grab them, take the confidence and go. Because no matter which way you turn, there'll be people to help you. And I think it's the first time in my life that I felt like actually being in an SME is better than being in a corporate. I think I'd rather spend my (laughs) life, you know, building new uh, solutions fast and quick rather than sitting in a big organization worrying about when the next 10 billion pound order is going to come through the door in aerospace, you know. That's the challenging
0: thing. Do do you think it's possible to, um, you know, you sort of mentioned vision, confidence, and resources. And I know lots of SMEs who have the beginnings of a vision, and I would say, uh, without being disrespectful, their confidence level is really low. Um, Is it possible to kind of dip your toe into messing around with the resources that are available? And here again, I'm I'm thinking specifically about going to a university, connecting with, you know, students like Nicole and, and your sort of peers. Can you kind of reverse engineer confidence and vision by engaging? Do do, do you think that's possible?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I've just built so many good friends because I've just taken the step towards a university and said, look, I'm not the expert you guys are. Um, How would you solve this problem? And they sort of say, well, actually, you do know a bit about this already, but let me help you with what we do know. And plugging those gaps. I mean, I think a university, if I think about it in my career, has always been a key part of how I've thought about things. I took a systems engineering approach doing an aeronautical engineering degree, getting a first class from Bath. And that has been probably the best thing I ever did. But at the same time, on top of that, I was also an apprentice. I got my Mm. uh, overalls on, went to the Rolls Royce Training College here in Bristol. Um, I learned on the trades, you know, how to mill, how to weld, uh, how to um, assemble. I learned all the basics, which I think is sometimes the vocational bit, which universities needs to bring to the table a little bit more. I love, you know, the the big academic um, powerhouses we have in the UK, in particular. But if we don't integrate that with practical reality, and this is the challenge we've got under lockdown and the continuation of this this virus, how do we give people the practical experience of being an engineer in the field? And I think there is a way, and I think technology helps us with that. You know, I uh, was lucky enough to be the the biggest owner of Hololenses from Microsoft in the middle of the ventilator challenge. We had eighty nine in total deployed across the UK, doing remote um, learning effectively. So many of the people on that program I've still never met, we deployed HoloLens into seven different factories. Uh, we had remote assist and we were able to teach each other how to go and build ventilators, something we've never even done before. But the the prerequisite for that, and this is where you know, we have worked with Autodesk heavily, is to actually build a digital twin of the, the ventilator. We actually needed something physically to converted into digital so that we could translate that into standard operating instructions, um, be able to reference parts. You know, many of the quality inspectors had never seen a ventilator part before and were looking for fit form and function. We ag- augmented their capabilities. And you know, this is why I think we need to do augmented learning by providing the link to the digital and having a an hybrid solution. So you could pick up a part. Look at that through your hollow lens and know that that part was fit, form, and function as per the CAD model. Now, when I think about this, when I was at university, if I hadn't had the practical experience of being on the shop floor, you know, I could design and I I like Nicole's example of you know, seats. I actually have done something to use generative design to take about 20% of a business class seat weight out. Um, But I, I needed to go and actually physically get a business class seat from actually an MRO shop in Cardiff, <laughs> I pulled it into the the, um, the office and scanned it, turned it into a digital representation to see really if I could make this work. Because without it being physically in front of me, it became really difficult. Now, that was a few years ago. Virtual reality has come a long, a long, long way. It's going to come further and faster. You know, We do need to, though, think about if you can't actually pick up these things and feel the weight, you know, you can't actually work out the space allocation quite as easily when you're actually not sitting in the seat. Or, You know, you need that physical piece. And I think without having some way to blend the physical and the digital, um, we're losing out. So one of the things I'm challenging myself to do is to see how we can bring people, particularly apprentices, into the physical environment, but safely. Um, I'm thinking about how to do that and looking at contact tracing, looking at the ways we can use um Uh, machine learning to, you know, learn whether someone's coming through the doors with a mask on, you know, and and only open the door when the mask is on, just things that just take some of the pain away from the future that we're going to live within.
0: So, uh, so Nicole, from your experience, um, do you think enough SMEs are approaching universities and saying, hey, I got this challenge, you know, outside of the Structured placement programs that exist. Do you think enough universities are knocking the door, sorry, enough SMEs, I apologize, are knocking the door of universities and having those kind of conversations that Paul's described?
2: From, from my limited experience, I, I would say no. And I think it's something that should definitely happen more. Um, I, I sort of completely agree with this whole If an engineer hasn't got this experience of physically manufacturing something, seeing their design actually come to life, they're not a very useful engineer. And it's something that I think a lot of engineering students have have an issue with. And it's once you do enter the workplace, having to then get accustomed to actually working with a physical product is very different to just seeing it on a piece of paper, doing a lot of maths in the background. It's it's not quite the same thing. And what Paul mentioned about uh, augmented reality and having this sort of interactive digital experience is the first step towards that. Given the expanding population, everyone's going to university these days. It's not always feasible to have everyone in the shop floor. Particularly looking at um, dense cities, um, so for example with Imperial, we're in central London, there is nowhere to expand. It becomes very difficult to make sure everyone has time on a lathe, for example. So having this digital experience is not the same, but it's certainly better than nothing. It's much better than seeing a video on a PowerPoint, for example. And it's enough to give you that understanding of how manufacturing works to then make your design smarter, so that you're not having to go through and go through several iterations, talking to the technicians, saying, well, you know, physically this is impossible. Why have you designed it like this? No, we need to have that information before so that when we do take it to to be manufactured, the workshop technicians are there to make it, sort of put the final touches in, make sure it's actually manufactured to the best to the best it can be, rather than making these fundamental design changes because we have no idea what's going on. Um, so I think having this um, partnership, a closer partnership with SMEs, give this opportunity to more students where they're not necessarily having to go through the university to um to get this experience right so um they can offer a new perspective Mm -hmm. as we know nothing from the way things are manufactured but we can offer this fresh perspective on how we think things should go based on what we've seen and based on the fact we don't have these preconceptions of how it should be and then learn from people who've actually done it physically and said well this Mm -hmm. is why we didn't do it like that or perhaps We'd never thought of that. And it's getting this synergy of two completely different backgrounds. And eventually, hopefully, we'll roll out some better engineers.
0: It just sounds so painfully easy to do. I mean, if I was running an SME, um, I, I would be kicking the door down of uh, Cardiff University saying, where are, your, where are your design and manufacturing and, and engineering students? Because I want to talk to them. Or is there anything stopping? SMEs, um, you know, the, the comment you made, Nicole, about um, having access to sort of physical hardcore manufacturing facilities, so like lathes, to, you know, mills, that kind of stuff. Is there anything stopping a manufacturing company kind of almost buddying up with university and saying, Look, if you want to, if you want to mess around with lathes and you want to see lathes, I'm thinking pre-COVID, obviously. Um, uh, is there anything stopping universities and SMEs connecting to say, you know, we've got a specialist lathe, or we've got a five-axis mill, we've got three D printers, we've got resource and capability outside of your condition, your, your traditional capability, um, and sort of almost making those available to universities? Would, would that be something that you think is possible to do, Nicole, for, for, from a you know university-industry partnership point of view?
2: I think the largest issue with that would probably be um, from the sort of knowledge, health, and safety side. You don't want a student to come in and then break a really expensive machine. And it obviously takes time to train someone to use it. Um, but I think even from the point of view of just perhaps having this conversation about a design, taking it through the different stages, not necessarily have the student manufacture it, but at least have them on site to be able to see how it works, understand the, the sort of pinch points of their initial design, for example, or the things that actually perhaps turned out well. Um, it's it's difficult. I think it would be fantastic for everyone to have this experience of actually manufacturing something. but it's. I I can understand that it's most likely unattainable for the majority of people. I
1: think, I think the the good thing about this conversation is that there aren't all the answers, but an SME obviously has a focus on probably a smaller, um, portfolio than a a larger corporate. The benefit of being connected with a a university is looking across the different, um, schools. And we're working, uh, with the likes of the school of manufacturing and, um, life sciences and maxifacial um, surgery uh, unit out of king's college london we're working with birmingham on uh, you know, medical device design we're working with you know, swansea university on scaling up manufacturing using uh, industry for we're working with sheffield on the amrc side with the looking at how we can deliver you know robotics and cobotics All of these things are amazingly interesting. But the one thing that's missing from all of that, and this is something I'm trying to tackle, is to look at the social aspects of this. If you start thinking about um, user experience, someone trying to um, move themselves into a digital manufacturing environment with new business models, um, you have to think about the impact that you're having on your people. Because if you start bringing cobots into a factory and thinking about the use of technology, you then have another set and suite of issues. You know, are those robots going to take my job? Um, You know, I think we have to think about it differently in that we have to think about all these technologies complementing, augmenting our learning and our jobs. And I think one of the challenges that an SME might have is to work that bit through. And it's quite easy. I mean, let's give you the example on the ventilator challenge, where... One of those factories, and I'm not going to say which, but we had Rolls-Royce, GKN, Airbus, Siemens, Ford. You know, we, we gave them HoloLens, and the response was like, well, wow, we'll just do this on paper. Um, we don't want the HoloLens. They're just they're, they're nice to have, not unnecessary. So we'll, we'll turn those away. The others took those uh, HoloLens, used them as a, an opportunity to try out the technology, and the benefit was that they could produce their ventilators at at half the cost and half the rate and twice the rate, you know. So immediately there was a big gain by taking the technology. The problem is the barrier. It takes an, a courageous leader to jump into digital and say, "Okay, I'm going to take this on." And I think in university, you've got courageous people who want to do something with this technology. So, how can you blend that university enthusiasm, ambition together with maybe the not I'm going to say laggards, but certainly those that struggle to be the, the leaders? Um, and I think that's the clever bit. The, the, the blend of the two is so important. You know, we can push each other much further and faster if we have that blend. Diversity yeah. is the key in innovation. Mm. And I think, mm. you know, universities have huge diversity of minds, of schools, of thinking. The blend that comes across, and I think Nicole's touched on it, even in these COVID lockdown times, probably the collaboration across different schools within the university has been better than ever before. I would imagine now that the society groups of universities get together online and do their socials this way, you know, with Zoom or whatever else.
0: House party.
1: Yeah. I, I don't, oh, well, that's the new one on me. I'll see if I'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> but my thought is. So you know, I've heard. I've never used it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, we need to get there. Um, but I think that the, the value of the social interaction across different functions of business or uh, across university schools is where diversity and innovation really comes together. And we can bring more out of everybody if we try out new things. And I think that that's the, the first part we go back to, get your confidence that you can do something with that diversity and innovation. But to do that confidence move, and I think this is the key for most SMEs, you need a bit of help. And what I can tell you now is that the government and I'm working with, the Manufacturing Made Smarter Commission, um, and Jurgen Mayer and uh, Chris Courtney, who are leading that activity for government, are really pushing to get SMEs interested in digital transformation. Now is the time and the place to get that government support to go alongside your ambitions. They'll introduce you to any university that will be able to partner with you, uh, and they'll also provide you with some of the means and mechanisms and even funding to do so. So, what a wonderful time to be in manufacturing and a small company. You know, I've been lucky enough to be part of the bigger companies, but some of these small companies are doing some really interesting and differential technology development and faster than the corporate. So let's lean on that and lean in. Let's work with the universities. Let's find ways and means which we can co-collaborate and co-create and uh, reinvent the product development lifecycle. I think there's one thing we've not touched on, and that's sustainability in manufacturing. I think there's another piece here about the circular economy That's going to drive us to think completely differently about how we design, manufacture and bring SMEs together. You know, the example on the mask that I have right now is everything I 3D print, all the waste support material that I have, I recycle it. You know, and it's it's going back into another product at another time. You know, I need to produce a low carbon footprint. I'm looking at how do I do distributed manufacturing close to the point of use? Could we create a factory in the box that ends up on a NHS hospital car park? So the day you walk into the, the the factory in the box maybe in a in a lorry, a bit like the blood donor, you get your face scanned the following day you come back and get your mask that's printed uh, with the components that have been assembled in that in that factory in the box. Um, how do we do these things that also benefit society the sustainability argument? again, an Sme distributed manufacturing solution is a better option than these great big towers of strength of you know massive manufacturing companies. so today, I call upon all the SMEs out there to begin to think differently and, and embrace the change and, and learn from what we've been talking about and go and get access to the finances, work with the universities and generate your proposition that will change your business and your future of your employees.
0: So, so that brings me nicely to sort of the, the sort of last part of the conversation is um, um, what are the three – so in a minute, I'm going to ask you both what are the three things, bits of advice you would give um, to the industry. So. Nicole, from from your perspective, um, what are the three things you wish that every SME manufacturer, designer manufacturing company in the UK would start doing tomorrow to bring industry and education closer together? What are the three bits of advice you've got? And I'll Paul, ask you the same thing in a minute.
2: The main one for me is be brave. Take that risk. We, we've been speaking a lot today about the confidence and having the confidence to to push further. And I think really, once that's been tackled, everything else will fall into place a lot more easily. It's about taking these risks of shaking things up, going digital, taking the advice of an unexperienced, sorry, inexperienced university student who thinks differently. It's these little things that will, once, you, once you're brave about it, it's these little things that will help push forward, I think, I believe. And it's, to be honest, I, I can't even think of three. For me, the main one is just be brave. Take these risks.
0: That's a really clear, clear bit of advice to to SME. So, Paul, from your point of view, and again, it doesn't need to be three. But what's the what's the bit of advice you would give all the SME manufacturers out there who might be listening to this, thinking, "Yeah, it's fine for the large organisations. What about me? But what could they literally do tomorrow?"
1: Firstly, I mean, we know that the graduates of two thousand and twenty have got jobs to be found. Um, the government's supporting uh, you getting those graduates at almost free. I'm um, going grab some. What 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 you got to lose by taking <laughs> on some of the best and brightest in the industry right now from Imperial College? And Nicole, come and work for me. We've uh, got
2: lots of land, but we're willing.
1: <laughs> and you know, we you know, we, we will take you on the journey. And and don't think that. And from a student's perspective, you know, don't think of it being you're stuck in that career track because you know, aerospace will come back and we will find a route back. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing to bring people mm. back into aviation. <laughs> so first thing is be brave, take some decisions now take the benefit of all the encouragement that the, uh, the government is providing, particularly in the UK and I'm sure across the world, get manufacturing going, Br- bring the, the, the value back to the country um, by taking on your challenges and actually doing something with it. And I think if you've got a purpose and a mission that people will follow, then you're going to get the best and brightest from university. You're going to get the best and brightest uh, capabilities from the wider um, ecosystem you're going to get the money to go with that the investors out there don't want to be earning 0.5 percent in a the bank they want to be finding new sources of income so i don't think there's a better time to create your own company as well so go and spin out something if you don't think you can do it within your own company go and find someone that can and leverage that um and go and find ways and means that you may not have tackled before so first thing is be brave and i think nicole's pointed that out second thing is look for support go and find those conversations if you have to use house party, go, go and go into some social environments and find a way to, to you know network in a different way. I, I constantly use LinkedIn and uh, other things to get my uh, thoughts out there. And, and it's really rewarding when you get the messages back saying, can you tell me more about that? Can we find out a little bit more about what you're doing there? It happens every day that I learn something from somebody. And that's my um, my guidance to everybody. You know, we're, ne- we're never going to be um, at the top of our learning. We can always learn from somebody so pick on that learning and turn it into action um you know what have i done today that's changed tomorrow and that's the question i keep asking myself and then the final thing that we need to think about i think is take that first small step on the digital journey i don't know how small it might be for you and your company but you know let's take the smallest step even today i've just been advising a small company starting up you know how do you get yourself off the kind of idea of government funding, grant funding, and get your first revenue? How do you put your monetization plans down so that investors can see that you've got a route to getting your first revenues? Because that's the essential for a new business. And often it's just a case of, well, turn on that other feature on your website and get people to pay for it, you know, or whatever it might be. But you can do minimum viable products so much easier now than ever before. Um, I could create a new business tomorrow and see if it works within a day, um, you know. That's the way that the future is going to work. We, we will never get it right straight away. We'll learn, we'll iterate, we'll develop, we'll learn, we'll iterate, we'll develop. And I think we'll create the circular um, environment if we share that learning. So I think the benefit of us being open to, to failure, I think, is one of the things that this country in particular is not so um, rewarded for. You look at the US market, of, you know, someone who's failed in business actually probably stands up on their feet the next day and starts again. You know, in this country, we look down on failure a different way. And I think there's a cultural aspect to that. We need to change that. And I think we need to challenge that.
0: Fantastic. So there you have it. It sounds like the technology has the potential to uh, achieve great things, but without the right people, the right sort of thinking and leadership behind it, um, it won't do it. So what I've taken from this conversation is if you run a company, if you're a SME leader, um you need to have a vision, and maybe that vision has to have a sort of a social impact as well as, as a kind of a monetary productivity kind of impact. You have to have the confidence to you know, take that first small step that Paul just talked about, and then you need resources and the, the sort of courage to go and you know uh, uh, you know uh, make some decisions. Now, the resources seem to be abundantly available. It seems to me that there are is a is a, a pool of creative, open, adaptable people out there who are good at spotting patterns and making connections and they seem to exist within our university framework. So take that first step, go and reach out to a university, talk to a non-expert about a challenge, an opportunity, an idea you have and see where that conversation ends. So I really want to thank um, Nicole and Paul for for a great conversation today. Thank you very much for both attending. Thank you for having me. No, thank you. No problem. And um, so we're going to wrap up on this uh, amazing topic today and we'll uh, talk to you again on the next podcast. So thanks very much. See you next time.